On this week's Behind the Idea, we share part two of our discussion with Seeking Alpha author Akram's Razor about the software as a service sector and the state of tech in general. The first episode spent more time on the specific pager duty short thesis that Akram shared on Seeking Alpha as compared to Atlassian, its larger competitor. We touched on that a little here, but zoomed out for what the category is for a short thesis like this and what the tells are. If we're going to change our pricing structure on our website again, after we just said we spent all this deep thought doing it six months ago, right? That's a red flag in the sense that elements tied to the listing of the company are impacting business decisions. And that's something you look for. The conversation also hits on what's necessary for wading into a frothy sector as a short-focused investor. When you only have a few names in, in the space to be able to trade, it's very difficult to eliminate that variable of, is a bubble 10x? Is a bubble 20x sales? Is a bubble 30x sales? You know, where does it actually factor into the equation? But when I get 40 names that I can trade and I say, okay, I don't really know where the sector valuation is going, I'll be long one short the other and go to sleep and wake me up in a year and let me see where SaaS multiples are. And as our talk hit the intersection of tech sector history and context and the ins and outs of targeting short ideas, Akram also provided a fun bit of context to bring everything together. I mean, Salesforce from 1 billion to 10 billion in revenue never traded over 11 times sales. And, you know, people forget that. This is the second part of the interview with Akram's Razor, and I encourage you to listen to the first part if you haven't yet. Together, I think they make for a compelling review of the software as a service sector and an analysis of how bubbles work and what investors can do to avoid getting blown up by them, and a window into how a professional short seller approaches the market. Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work, based on articles and ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem. I'm Daniel Schwartzman, co-host for Behind the Idea along with Mike Taylor, my colleague, though he wasn't able to make this interview. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. I don't have any positions in any stocks that we mention. As of recording, Akram's Razor is along Salesforce.com and Atlassian and short PagerDuty and MongoDB. If you're interested in Akram Razor's work, check out Once Upon a Time in Tech, an article on Seeking Alpha that in part inspired this interview and that was a big hit. And also check out his marketplace service, The Razor's Edge. You can find that either by going to seekingalpha.com slash marketplace and searching for Akram's Razor on that page, or just by going to seekingalpha.com and searching for Akram's Razor. That's spelled A-K-R-A-M apostrophe S Razor. Okay, have a listen to part two of our interview, picking up with the PagerDuty thesis and going from there. I guess that's the question here is where does this go wrong for you and right for pager duty? Is it just that they get enough momentum that they, you know, they roll out a new product and they expand their base a little bit or they make a deal or like how, how would this, how would pager duty ultimately justify the value? Even if not the valuation, just how would they be able to maintain their momentum? Well, I mean, that's the beauty of this thesis, Daniel. I mean, like if you look at how I've outlined this, I'm aiming for this company to be trading at 20 times trailing revenue pretty quickly, right? 
20 times trailing revenue would be viewed as a bubble valuation, you know, nine months ago. Okay. If things go wrong for PagerDuty, it's a few hundred million dollar company again. Right? Right. That's the downside, which is where we get into this whole element of, you know, what is failure today versus what it was in 2000. From 5 billion to, you know, 500 million is 90%. Right? And that's a huge difference. And that would still be a massive success story, right? You built a 500 million business, you know, with essentially what some people would call a Twilio hackathon project, right? I mean, look at Twilio underneath them. Twilio's got 50% margins. They're the ones who aggregated the carriers and are doing the SMS and, uh, and voice functionality, right? And these guys are out there, you know, with 85% gross margins sitting on top of Twilio. So, I mean, this is, and Twilio, they've done it with Flex recently where, they, where, they've, where they've gone against the, you know, contact center cloud customers that they have who have built on Twilio with their own native offering because they want subscription business. They want higher margin business. So when I look at where, what could go wrong with PagerDuty, I mean, it would have to be a company that would have no SaaS competition. And that's when you go into the market today. And it, it's, it's that catch 22 of being a recent IPO. Like I find what Atlassian has done from an approach standpoint here fascinating because it's, it's like a very well executed strategy test case for competition in cloud in that they really became aggressive right as these guys listed, right? And PagerDuty changed their pricing you know, for, from an IPO positioning dress up, you know, we call it putting lipstick on the pig or whatever, but they want their metrics in that window through the lockup to be looking smooth and hunky dory. And there's ways to pull levers to do that. And they did that. But there's also strategic consequences to that because once Atlassian went where they went with pricing, and I've talked to some people in the space who, who you know, use the products, they're like, this is ridiculous. I mean, you know, the amount we were paying is almost to the point of right. some of them felt stupid, <laughs> right? And that's where you have like it, it's the the tricky scenario of you know being a leader in this space and you know you're ticking all the boxes and you're a fun company and everyone loves you and you're 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 doing your 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 evangelism and you know you're one percent. Uh, giving and you've got a female CEO everybody likes and 40% of your C-suite is female and you're diverse. And like, I mean, yeah, it looks like a fantastic place to work and and people are very happy with them and it's a great success story. But at the same time, they're raping the small customer and the small customer is now trying to, is starting to figure that out. Right. So because what Netflix is paying is a fraction of what, let's say, you know, the city of, uh, of Austin or, or, or whoever who is using PagerDuty and, you know, have, has been used as a, 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 as a test case, right? And that's what Atlassian's exploiting, right? By, by just sticking that calculator on the website, which they added like just a week and a half ago, by, you know, targeting Ops Genie and showing you that, oh, you're paying this much, we're willing to go down to here. And they don't even have to expend on a sales force because all the customers using the product are existing Atlassian customers. Because if you have PagerDuty, then you probably have a ticketing system. You're probably going to either be using SataPage. 
You may have used Jira software for sure, and you're probably using Slack, right? So it's it's not hard for them to like as as we were talking earlier on customer acquisition to get that message out, and that's where, as an investor, you're like, well, they're strategically boxed in. What are they going to do here? You know, they just changed pricing, and I, and this occurred by the way the week before earnings. They took down off their website PagerDuty the enterprise pricing at ninety nine dollars and replaced it with call sales, right? Because they probably looked at what. Ops Genie and Elastic were doing, had some people asking a decent amount of questions, and we're like, let's take this off because we can give them the discounts we're willing to match on price, right? But then they put it right back up after the earnings call because I'm sure that they were very obviously evasive on the earnings call regarding anything regarding pricing and strategy issues. But I think behind the scenes, it's like, why rumple any feathers here? If a customer complains, you know, deal with it. But our investors want to exit. And you have a lockup window. So if we're going to change our pricing structure on our website again, after we just said we spent all this deep thought doing it six months ago, right? That's a red flag. And I mean, the fact that they did it already confirms it. And the fact that they changed it back even more uh, supports or let's say uh, reaffirms the thesis, right? In the sense that Elements tied to the listing of the company are impacting business decisions. And that's something you look for. Right. When you're looking at in the current climate and you're looking for, you're looking at stocks, you're studying industries, you're looking at how to differentiate between the pager duties of the world and the, you know, whatever the long opportunities are, whether it's at last, you know, whatever else, what are you like? What, how are you sorting those out? What are you what do you view as, because I don't, my sense is it's not just valuation. I, my sense is that valuation is kind of. Okay, you're a fool if you're shorting a valuation. I mean, there's the, it's the, like, it's the worst possible thesis. If you, if you have experience shorting, you know, I mean, valuation does give some perspective and, and maybe it's where you have a margin for error, but you can't just look at it. You know, competition is one thing, native cloud competition. I mean, you know, we can go back to Viva, right? You know, and, and you know my experience with that, both, you know, from when it IPO'd to flipping it around as a long two years later to just recently, again, th- you know, viewing it as a short based on some competitive things. Viva is, you know, one of the most amazing stories in software because it's essentially never really had any real competition in its space. It's, it's competed against, let's say, we'll call them legacy, your traditional legacy software vendors. But there have also been dynamics to their space where pharma was hitting a padding cliff. They wanted to cut costs in 08. Oracle looked at this market and said, reps are declining. And, like It's not a market worth investing in. The TAM is small and so on and so forth. That ended up being perfectly right. These guys, when they went public, they called the the CRM TAM, $2 billion, right? And that was a major focus for me in, in, at the end of 2013. And it was conclusively proven that it was bad IPO math and investment bankers. I mean, I had all the behind the scenes on that as well, but they never backed off it, right? Like, we're going to get $5,000. CRM is a $400 million revenue business. They probably have 95% market share, right? And it's six years later, okay? So I... I 
it, it's a case where you look at it and you say, I couldn't have been more right on the analysis of the space. But that actually worked in their favor because they panicked from day one and they were a one product company who was dependent on a relationship with Salesforce, which within three months of them listing, Salesforce stuck in a 500 million true up. They were not happy, right? Like this is a company that I I would say paranoia from from day one, which maybe short sellers and and someone putting a, a thesis like me out actually catalyzed them to move as aggressively as possible on diversifying away. And and where the Viva success story has been, has been in in Vault, which they built on their own, Mm -hmm. right? And them targeting Documentum, which became an orphan when Dell bought EMC, right? And they went through the same thing with, with CRM, but in CRM, there were structural dynamics to the market that made it unappealing you know, longer term, because if you're Oracle and you're like this, I'm earning, you know, $200 per rep and these guys are going down to 80, right? Why don't I just not do anything and invest elsewhere? Because there's going to be fewer reps in five years and there's going to be fewer big pharma companies and they're consolidating and they're moving away from this and doctors are gaining less access. So I'm going to be looking at a market if I'm going to compete, that isn't going to be 400 million, it's going to be 300 million or 200 million. Is it worth my time? And they made that decision that if not, we'll let these customers continue overpaying us and the time that it takes them to roll off, we'll milk those cash flows and we'll put them elsewhere, right? That's actually an interesting thing about having an unappealing market and being a person who's come into it and displacing someone who has decided it's not worth holding on to it and then taking that and leveraging into something else, right? And that's what Viva is on. I mean, Viva, like... You can say, I mean, the valuation on it is still absolutely insane, but it's because they've, they've succeeded so well against legacy vendors who either have been uninterested in, in the market or for whatever reason, like strategically impaired as the way, let's say, Documentum was when, you know, Dell and EMC decided that this is not a focus for them going longer term. Again, because it's a small TAM, right? And the market tends to overpay and, and, and you, you sit in a position like that, that's great. But when you're looking at markets with growth dynamics, i.e., let's say like this DevOps space, right? Competitors are looking at it and they're, and they're pure cloud competitors and they're saying, this is a market that's strategically important to me, right? I can't have this person growing in here because he becomes an existing threat to my entire broader business model. And that's when you look at stuff and you say, let me find like that type of dynamic, you know, can I find more companies that fit along those lines, right? Where like in Twilio's case, for example, where Twilio sits and in the UCAS market and and where Zoom is coming in and this cloud contact center and so on and so forth, you can look at that space and say, okay, well, I mean, there's a lot of headbutting going on here. Or how about, for example, MongoDB? MongoDB is, is... has been a darling lately, right? Mm-hmm. Super hot stock, you know, document database. And you look at AWS and, you know, MongoDB essentially wants to become a cloud company, right? I mean, that's what they, they really need to go with Atlas. I mean, you can, you can sit and look at the, the, the UX for that and, and be like, all right, I mean, it's great and whatnot, but like for this business to remotely achieve the valuation that it's gotten in the market today, 
it's got to be like, you know, uh, an AWS mini, right? And Amazon can look at that and be like, you know, I mean, that's just not going to happen. And, and I mean, there's and, and engineers can look at it. And like, if you talk to people on the database side, on the products and whatnot, there's, there's definitely interesting cases as far as criticism of te- the technology and where things will eventually go. And Elastic has kind of run into this also with Elasticsearch against AWS and, and, and some of this open source stuff. But those are areas where you look at strategic competition on things that are, are growing and where you have a major player who looks at that market and says, you know, this is an important market for the future. And I'm going to invest heavily here against said point product, right? And that is kind of a bit of the nature of microservices now, because you look at platforms today and you say, well, CrowdStrike comes out and they're like, you know, we want to be the Salesforce or service now of cybersecurity, you know, pager duty, if you were to probably give them their aspirations and be like, you know, we want, we essentially want to be Atlassian, right? When you, when, when you can do those compares and say, okay, this is not a case of some old school legacy vendor holding on to the market, but more so a, a successful growth company, which is trade, also trading at 20 times sales, which you know, needs to grow at a super fast clip to justify it. And, and, and that's where things, I think, get interesting today. And so I, I read one comment on PagerDuty. I think a person tied it to, to Viva on Seeking Alpha. And you know, they were pointing out that you know, Viva stock has gone up as much as it has, like all software has, if, frankly, all tech since January. You know, people are like, oh, this stock went up 60%. I'm like, well, I mean, that's the mean return for Microsoft and, and Netflix and, and Amazon right. since January 1. <laughs> you know, let's like, you know, put some things into perspective. But, you know, you do look at it and the person says, look, if, if this thing goes down to what you were talking about, well, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be trading at 10 times sales. And they've now viewed that as like a distressed right. valuation, right? And you go back two years ago, and I still remember, you know, on, on the day LinkedIn crashed, February 8th of 2016, I think I had done a short pieces on Ultimate Software, which uh-huh. recently got acquired. And my entire thesis on Ultimate was Ultimate is trading at seven, 6.5 times forward sales, okay? I had no v- issues with Ultimate's business model. I was like, it's 6.5 times forward sales. You know, Tableau is down to like 1.8, right? Now and Workday are like, you know, at 5x. Salesforce is at like four something, right? So I'm like, either all the rest of these are super cheap, which ended up being the case, right? Or Ultimate is a short, you know? And Ultimate ultimately sold for like nine times sales or 9.5 times sales earlier this year. Ultimus multiple barely expanded over time. Actually, more so almost sideways since the lows in in software. While some of the stuff that was really getting hammered back then, you know, expanded drastically. I mean, if you look at the typical person who was probably trading software and looking for short ideas, like the core starting point for the thesis on relative valuation, if they didn't like something, would be like, geez, this is like at nine times revenue and the peer average is five, right? Now you got people being like 10 times sales, you know, would be distressed. I mean, go look at Cloudera. What's Cloudera at now? One time sales? I mean, you know, there's a binary element to these things. When something goes wrong, they get so drastically repriced. So if you look at these 50 50 plus 
cloud companies now, we have, we have as low as 1x sales to like as high as 50. That's a huge range, which means there's a lot of inefficiencies. Right. I, I mean, when Atlassian reported its last quarter, the stock traded down on some like, you know, billings, uh, you know, concerns or whatever. It's almost becomes like, you know, pointless to, to even look at the actual excuse for what happens in a software stock because the visibility has been so high that like you're never going to short a stock and be like they're going to miss on earnings, right? That, that, that's very unlikely view. Viva has beaten consensus er, bottom line and top line every single quarter as a public company, right? Which tells you a lot about consensus because they give a guidance. That guidance is lowballed and the analysts just, you know, essentially just take that and, and stick it on there. And it's just like beat, 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 to the point where, you know what, the beats have been diluted that they're irrelevant uh-huh. if you're going to short it. I've never traded that, that name or any SaaS name with a view that, oh, they're going to miss sometime soon. It just becomes of degrees of, you know, why do I want to be long this one? Why do I want to be short that one? I mean, Salesforce from 1 billion to 10 billion in revenue never traded over 11 times sales. And, you know, mm-hmm. people forget that, right? And now you got these things at, at 20, 30, 40x. And I mean, I, I think that day Atlassian reported, it came down. Atlassian, Twilio, and Viva had the same market cap, mm-hmm. right? And I looked at that. I'm like, God, there's some serious inefficiencies going on here. Like, I like Twilio's story, but 80% of Twilio's revenue is telephony SMS carrier aggregation. It's not software subscription, right? right? So maybe in theory, like, yeah, they're growing at a faster rate, but, you know, maybe as much as I've hated on Viva at, at different times, I'd much rather own Viva's business at the same market cap. Or I definitely would rather own Atlassian software subscription business at the same market cap, right? With its growth visibility. Because with Viva, you come back to how big is your little vertical TAM? What are your issues with Salesforce? What is going on here? And so on and so forth. But like that's when you can see now in the, in the marketplace where people can't tell the difference. Like I look at Elastic and, and MongoDB today, and I have, I ha, I, I've, I've done an, enough work on both of them where I have issues with both of them. But like Mongo's trading at twice the market cap of Elastic. They pretty much have the same revenue. People are a little bit more concerned with what Amazon has done with Open Distro Fork as far as Elasticsearch. But if you talk to, to the database geeks, they view Elastic's product as much more sticky than MongoDB's product, mm. right? So you're like, all right, well, how much right now is the market over essentially overpaying? for the near-term momentum Mongo has in what is essentially developers prototyping and, you know, very, like, you, you got to be looking at maybe like three $400 a month in revenue on, on Atlas, on those MLab customers and at like a price point, which is way lower than, you know, what you see in uh, decent economics for enterprise scale customers, you know, in the data and database space. So can I just be long one and short the other? I mean, there's so many opportunities to pair trade when you didn't have them before, right? Before you'd have a SaaS, it's, it's, it's a green field and it's like, you know, 
It's it's a standalone. It's like the Beyond Meat problem, mm-hmm. right? I don't know. Like people, well, why would you ever want to short Beyond Meat right when it started trading? There's no other option to be long in the market. Forget the borrow costs and all the other things that made it stupid. But like, how do you attack that thesis? You know, I went and I tried an impossible whopper the other day, and I'm just like, all right, this is all right. I mean, it's it's not great, not bad, but like, you know, they got me to try it, right? And they're selling this for you know two to three x what real beef costs right now, and there's going to be more of these, and you, you you can't pinpoint the problems in the business model yet, or really like yes, on the surface, obviously there's elements with a lockup and short interest and, and stock lending that, that can cause the stock to trade crazy. But that's not a short from the way a typical approach of looking for something. I want to find something where I'm like, I can really understand this business and I understand the people in the space. And that's happening a lot more in software now, right? And that's where when you can sit and say, okay, I don't, I don't necessarily know whether a, the, the overvalued, hated names on terms of valuation are 10 times sales or 20 times sales or 30 times sales. That's a moving target, right? And from a macro standpoint, we can all look at the market today and, and, and what's going on with rates and cost of capital where it is and how you know easy it has been to raise money, how easy it is to build a software company and, and, and so forth, so on and so forth, and conclude that maybe the whole space is going to get cut in half. And it, that's likely going to happen if you look at history without question. I don't think anyone, no, even if you buy the best stocks here in software, like the winners, you're going to go through some pain, right? There's going to be a reset. I mean, like look at, at people who bought FireEye. FireEye revenue grew nicely. I mean, there's so many names. If you look at them in software, they grew nicely. The stock went down 80%. You know, Workday went through the same cycle, Right. I mean, Workday investors who bought at the peak in 2014 took them, you know, five years almost to break even, right? And this is for a company that grew like over that five-year period, like 80%, 60%, 60%, 50, 40, right? Huge top-line growth numbers. So it's when you get way ahead of yourself. But when you only have a few names in, in the space to be able to trade, it's very difficult to eliminate that variable of is a bubble 10x is a bubble 20x sales is a bubble 30x sales you know where does it actually factor into the equation but when i get 40 names that i can trade and i say okay i don't really know where the sector valuation is going but alassian is most likely going to crush you know pager duty over the long term so pager duty at 40 times trailing revenue and at last seen at 25, even with pager duty's low base, I'll be long one short the other. And, you know, go to sleep and wake me up in a year and let me see where SAS multiples are. Okay. Right. Yeah. I like so all right. Yeah, that that's a clean sort of breakdown there. So just to just to wrap up then with that, what we you mentioned a few names. Any disclosures as far as uh, any positions that you are taking i mean i i i have a a, a long position in atlassian against a pager duty short i own some sales force i've been short mongodb since probably you know over 160 recently i'm, I'm still short some you know i like to approach these with 
a targeted strike type of mentality, right? Often is the case, and I like to be able to get the work done. So, like you know, I've, I've been following Mongo since seven it, since the Amazon news came out. I actually went long it uh, when the stock dipped on the Amazon competition news, and in, in maybe it was February. It was like one of the few stocks that I, I I went long in 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 the January February time frame. Uh, Salesforce being the notable other one, but when I went long it on AWS scare, well, just on a pure like, okay, you know, every time Amazon gets thrown into something, the stock gets gets hammered, and the the, the effect of that tends to last a lot less longer. And I think I bought it pretty close to the low I traded at this year, maybe seventy four, seventy five. It went back to like eighty five. I sold it. I was I was actually elated in a short time period. Then I watched it over the next forty days go from you know, 80 to $170 or whatever it peaked uh, up. Recently. Yeah, 880 <laughs> you know? it looks like. Yeah, yeah they, they, beat, they beat revenue by like, you know, two or three million on, on a 70 million revenue base and the stock was up 40% on earnings. And you start looking at that and you go, you go on these Wall Street, I, there was, I was actually, someone forwarded me a link on the Wall Street bets where these guys are posting their Robinhood trades. And there's a trader on there who posted the he quadrupled or quintupled his money trading MDB in the last couple of months. He t- he took all that and he dumped it into Fastly, right? You know, Akamai 2.0 open source. Like if you wanted to like on the surface pick at a business model, be like, okay, it's a cloud native edge CDN. It's got the open source debate problems that exist for both, you know, that we've seen with Pivotal Cloudera that people are now discussing with MDB and Elastic. Uh, and you know it's and it's also got the IPO characteristics, and this guy, I mean, I think a million plus dollars he dumped into the IPO, and you know they screenshot it, they're posting their stuff. So you have this whole new generation of traders who have come off of you know maybe trading crypto on Robinhood <laughs> a couple of years ago to now trading IPOs. So I mean I, that that cadre of stocks. You know, in the IPO market has been an area of focus on the short side for me because you can just see the IQ on the stuff being so low. I mean, the more and more and more times I spend on MongoDB, the more and more convinced that like this could be, you know, a 90% down stock in two years, right? Is it the, is now the window to approach that? Well, that is debatable. You got to you got to pick your spots. You got to do the work. You got to understand what's driving it in, in the near term. But when I find something like that, we're like, okay, there's a technology problem. You talk to the database guys from you know ac- across the board in in, in, in big cap uh, tech, and and they all will tell you, yeah, this you no know, SQL craze is, is is kind of petering out and. Uh, we've essentially kind of moved on and, and here's the problems with Mongo and here's the hype and you're like, oh, well, this is worth spending time on because Cloudera is not one-time sales uh, and like Hadoop, you know, was chugging along for two years, 50% plus revenue growth. Uh, it hit a wall and, and it's a one-time sales company, right? I mean, yes, there's element of it, more, more service revenue and so on and so forth, but what, what margin for, for error do I have if I short an MDB or a CrowdStrike, right? You look at a CrowdStrike and you're like, all right, if BlackBerry paid $1.4 billion for Silence and nine months ago, these two were viewed as like basically on par 
competitive positioning wise and cloud-based endpoint detection security. How is this one at $15 billion all of a sudden? It's, what, what drastically changed? You know, why is it 5X the multiple they were happy with five months ago? Right. You follow me? Yeah, yeah. Those sorts of shifts and understand. Yeah, for sure. I mean, crazy. I mean, like, I, th- there is the stuff that is like the lowest of the low, right? Which would be, let's say, like the Jumia IPO, right? Where it's the Amazon of Africa. And you look at that and you're just like, okay, come on. But this is just examples of, of complete utter stupidity. And then there's stuff where it's like where Uber and Lyft have gone public and it's like, all right, you know, what's going to happen to 2020 election? What's going to happen from a legal standpoint with our, our workers going to be viewed as, you know, contractors or employees? I mean, are, is this socialist wave in the U.S. going to be an issue, you know, healthcare costs, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of companies in tech where you're like, all right, these on-demand companies do have some regulatory risks, right? And it makes sense to start listing now ahead of those risks because those risks are significant. I mean, you, you've got what's going on in California uh, related to uh, the drivers and, and how that's going to play out. I mean, th- th- there there are things where you get that the VCs and people involved are de-risking. Then there's stuff that you look at it and you're like, they're, they're looking, they're, they're riding the momentum in the current environment like a Jumia to just exit a failing business model. And then you have the guys where they're great stories and, you know, it could be a Slack, it could be a whoever, and they want to capitalize also on the euphoria. There's like a mishmash, right? And then you got like a pager duty, which falls like somewhere in between, right? Where it's like, all right, we made this decision here. We think we can get a lot more than you know what an acquirer would have paid us, and maybe they made a strategic miscalculation that actually impacts the long-term elements of the business model. And and these are the types of scenarios you you look to, you know, I guess ferret out when you're looking at, at like the, this level of IPOs and and uh, this kind of you know dominant interest in one sector. You know, I mean. People always say it's very hard to time a bubble, but there is a human behavior element to it. It's almost, you know, unanimous in every single example. And I like I, I can't look at this market today in, in software and not see that the types of speculation going on. You know, where you look at a, a stock price moving, you know, five six x over twelve months. And then you look at the ones where like they moved, you know, they doubled in, you know, 30, 40 days and price changes like that are not sustainable. It's the same way on the way down, you know, where we were sitting on Christmas Eve, December 24th, you know, I looked at the market and I'd been trading a lot of tech. I was obviously very involved in NVIDIA last year. And I was like, if we keep falling at this rate, you know, we're going to be at zero in like two months. Right. So. The rate of decline is definitely going to slow. And when the rate of decline slows, it tends to be a precursor to, you know, a reversal. And I started, I moved and I started trading. I, I, I bought some Starbucks. You know, I bought some Target. I bought some Costco. I bought Goldman Sachs at like 149, 150. And these were names I hadn't really been focusing on in a long time. But like, I couldn't necessarily figure out whether or not Amazon is going to be rebounding immediately. But once you gave me the opportunity to 
by businesses where I've, I've felt more predictable in the model and immediately huge price changes. And then I look at that portfolio. I wish I had done more then. And it's like, you know, th- these names went up. Like, I think Costco moved as much as, you know, Netflix. I mean, it's like, come on. Right. You know? And then I, I look at, uh, people look at Netflix and I'm like, Disney has crushed Netflix over the last 12 months, right? For, uh-huh. So there's been this huge volatility in tech where you get these price swings where people are so still more interested in these fang names. But it's also like a lot of them just haven't gone anywhere, right? And that software space has, has been the one that, you know, at the, at the margin has sucked in more flows where you're like, all right, I mean, this, kind of, this definitely looks like something that's running out of gas. And there's so much coming out now that I can't keep up. And we saw this in 2014, you know, with, with your cast lights and your rocket fuels and, and all this. Yeah, some of these are, are higher quality, but when they get priced at nth degrees higher, you're just like, all right, I mean, what is a victory for me as a short seller at CrowdStrike? 15.5 billion turns into 7.5 billion? Is, is, is that, you know, is that going to be a major accomplishment? Because where the company is trading at 7.5 billion, it could still go to 2 billion. And it could still be there a success story with how crowded the security market is and, and what we've seen in the security market over time. So, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's definitely, you know, I call it, you know, to another person, a target rich environment. It's, it's definitely a place where there's a lot of, a lot of work to be doing that can be done today, right now, because when you have a supply wave like this, and all these variables, like, you know, interconnected, it's tough for anyone to keep up. And that's where you typically get, you know, mispriced asset opportunities. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, I mean, we've, we've covered a lot. And so let's, I feel like we could unpack more sort of angles on the, more of these targets and more of the verticals here, but, uh, this has been fascinating and thank you, Akram, for taking the time to break this down and uh yeah no problem all right daniel i enjoyed it thank you all right thanks akram let's let's wrap it there take care thanks for listening to behind the idea i hope you enjoyed the podcast as always let us know what you thought by emailing us at btipod at seekingalpha.com you can look me up on twitter at at daniel seeking a and you can look up mike taylor at at m brooks taylor There are more threads to pull in the cloud computing sector, so watch out for future episodes on that topic. If you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you find podcasts. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thank you for listening. See you next week on Behind the Idea.